Hello, I am Gabriel White, and welcome to the Trial Lawyer Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to discussing important issues facing lawyers and the business of law, as well as the impact of those issues on the general public. Tonight, I'm joined by two very close friends of mine who have graciously agreed to sit down with me and help out with this show. Scott Powers and Danny Sepernich are both extremely talented and influential attorneys in the local legal community. Uh, They both work at the law firm Snow Christensen and Martineau, where Scott handles uh, construction issues and Danny practices water law. I am uh, Gabriel White, as I mentioned. I'm a personal injury attorney representing plaintiffs, and I work at the law firm of Christensen and Jensen in Salt Lake City. Tonight we're going to tackle an important issue, a bit of a controversial one, that has to do with access to justice. Um, There seems to be a fairly significant problem uh, in our state and nationwide with um, people who are not able to get legal representation to help them with their legal matters and uh, suffer injustice as a result. There are programs for people who are meet certain poverty guidelines, but they're often overworked and don't have the resources they need. And if you make just enough money not to qualify for those, you also probably don't make enough money to be able to hire a private lawyer. So um, the Utah Supreme Court has created a program. They're trying to fill that gap. It's called the Paralegal Practitioner Program. And as you'll hear, it's a program that's designed to allow some Utah paralegals to qualify for a license to advise and assist clients with legal problems that fall into a few very specific areas without working under the oversight of a licensed attorney or without getting actually getting a law license themselves, which is kind of a new thing. And the hope is that this will help Uh, meet this need and improve access to justice throughout the community. So we had a great discussion. Um, We all sat down and uh, tried to look for the the good and the bad. We hope you enjoy it. The audio just kind of jumps right into a discussion of when the program will start. And so we will now go ahead with that. Enjoy. Or does it go into effect sometime soon? I'm not, not actually certain. Do you know, Scott? My understanding is that they passed it in 2015, and they're still figuring out the nuts and bolts. Figuring out the nuts and bolts. Well, I, I know we. So I'm running the fall forum this year with um, with Amy Fowler, another great attorney, and um, I know they're they're um, doing a presentation at the fall forum. I know this because they told us when we were trying to select who was going to be at the fall forum, they told us you will select um, the paralegal practitioner presentation. So they're going to be there talking about it uh, a little bit, but um, we had some thoughts that we thought we... Agenda from the Paralegal Practitioner Steering Subcommittee, October 20th, 2016. Dino Hamonas, of course, is there making friends. Welcome, everyone, to the meeting. So this is... The Salt Lake Tribune has an article that says the Utah Supreme Court has approved the creation of the new profession, but it will take some time to implement the program. So now that the task force has presented its findings to the Supreme Court and the Judicial Council, a committee will be appointed to figure out the nuts and bolts of how the program will work, including what educational requirements will be needed, 
and what the exact limitations will be. Do they have a like an estimated rollout date or? Well, we've got meeting minutes from them right now. I mean, I'm looking at the August 18, 2016, Paralegal Practitioner Steering Committee meeting. And you've got Dean Alder, uh, well, somebody appearing for him, John Baldwin, Allison Belknap, Adam Caldwell, Terry Conaway, Sue Crimson, James Deans, <laughs> Julie Emery. Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> Isn't that like James some porn Dean. guy's name? It's like the only porn guy name I know. James Dean's not a porn star. Isn't it? No. Let it, to be, let it be known that Powers Power thinks James Dean is a porn star <laughs> and not an actor in, from the 70s who died tragically in a car accident. Isn't there some guy named that that's like... I, I don't Rick know. Rick James? I would not know that. No, Rick, that's, that's not Rick James either. <laughs> Rick James is the cocaine is a powerful drug guy. Yeah. Rick James. Um, Jim Jardine. Julie yeah. Emery from our mother. So Powers has decided that James Dean and Rick James are all, both on the Paralegal Practitioner Committee, which uh, should make it for some interesting meetings. Um, but what, So what was uh, recommended and I think approved by the Utah Supreme Court is that licensed paralegal practitioners will be able to offer services in three practice areas. The first is actually a couple of different sub-practice areas, and it's temporary separation, divorce, paternity, cohabitant abuse, and civil stalking, custody and support, and name change. And then the second area is residential eviction, and the third is debt collection. Okay. And does it say how they chose those practice areas? I mean, some of them seem obvious, and some of them seem a little bit random. Uh, the the committee chose them, from my understanding, because uh, they did a study as to what people go unrepresented in but should be represented in, and they found those were the areas where there was the most need, and, and they were simple enough areas of the law such that we could put somebody who didn't necessarily have a Juris Doctorate in to handle it, or at least presumably, according to the committee's determination, that the, the law is simple and straightforward enough such that we can let these otherwise unrepresented people be represented by uninsured and untrained people. So is that what's driving the whole thing? I mean, is it just... It, it, it's a, it's a gap the, filler. But is it the... It, I mean, it, well, I think it's my, an access to justice. Well, that's, no, that's, well, okay, all right. One way to look at it, I and I, 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 I get that. I mean, I support, obviously, access to justice. But I think that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is that maybe the judiciary is really tired of dealing with unrepresented litigants and I don't they think decided to create no. a program to fix that problem so they wouldn't have to deal with people. Eh, well, well you could I, say I that. also think that there might be a lack of resources to enable the judiciary to, to address um, large amounts of pro se filings in the manner that it requires. So I don't know that it's a convenience as much as ensuring that people who file things get the appropriate attention and when they're filed in like on mass by pro se litigants, there's just not that opportunity because the courts don't have that amount of resources. So within the so within this document that was prepared by the committee or whatever it is, uh, recommending that paralegal practitioners is it a committee about, or I'm, I'm sorry when you say the, doc the committee or whatever the it is, document what is the what Supreme mean? Court Task Force to examine limited legal licensing. Okay. Report and recommendations dated November 18, 2015. I have that too. Okay, so if we go into that, we go down to page 14 of that. It talks about um, 
Ladies and gentlemen, podcast listeners, listeners, we will now, for the third time, read you a document. We're not going to read a document. Calm down. Well, you know, the bottom line is these are where the statistics are coming from. So we can either tell them that's where they're coming from or Go we can just ahead. pretend that I'm inviting, read inviting it. myself. Read it. All right. So it says here, to detail the first line of inquiry, we look at the fiscal year 2015 court records that show the case types in which parties largely are not represented by lawyers. So they did. They went back and uh, they did do a study, but the study was... Let's go, well, it wasn't necessarily a study. It was let's look at the court records and see where people are appearing without, without uh, attorneys. Well, and that's what this list is here. And it says, frankly, debt collection is by far uh, the one where we have the most came, or case filings where only one party is represented. And I, I will, so a couple of things to that. I mean, I, I, will, I can agree to that. I mean, we, I ran a legal clinic out um, on the west side for a few years, and then the vast majority of the people who came in, I mean, it was a Spanish-speaking legal clinic, and we were prepared for a bunch of immigration questions, and we did know family law was going to be an issue, but um, the vast majority of them were debt collection issues. Um, and I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing that, you know, the judiciary wants to not have to deal with but unrepresented litigants. Well, wait a minute, because I've because I have sat and watched the frustration in court, where you know the judge and everybody else in the room really wants to tell this unrepresented litigant, "Hey, go file a Rule 60B motion," and the judge is going to set this default aside. But the judge can't tell him that because the judge can't offer legal advice, and that obviously would be partial. You know, would would not be impartial given that somebody else has moved for a default. Um, the person's up there saying, well, but I didn't get served, and it's not doing it in the right form. So I get that, and I, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a, broad, a, a problem. The problem I have is, I mean, these people aren't going to be allowed to, paralegal practitioners are not going to be allowed to show up in court, right? Correct. That right here, it says it's limiting, they're limiting them to... The boundary is the courtroom door. Yeah, I think it's something like that. But it says, you know, provide general legal information, opinions, or recommendations about possible legal rights, remedies, defenses, procedures, options, or strategies, but not specific advice, and here's the gray area, I guess, related to another person's facts or circumstances. So how does that fix So how do you tell them what to do, but don't tell them specifically what so wait, applies to their so, so you're telling me, so you're looking at the report right now, you're telling me... Okay, so we're trying to fix the problem of unrepresented litigants showing up in court, which we all agree, big problem, needs to be fixed. Um, well, I don't know. I, I think well, you're wrong. I think, well, no, you hold on. I think that you're wrong when you say the problem is unrepresented litigants in court. I think the issue isn't so much whether they're represented as they sit there in court and they talk to a judge. Rather, it's whether or not they have knowledge about what they should be doing procedurally and what the law is and how it applies to them. And I oh. think that's where the paralegal comes in because, as Danny said, it, it stops at the courtroom door. Right. But so that's, it that's obviously isn't going to solve your, your, your invented problem of, oh, I mean, hey, of course don't like Joe Schmo coming in. He's not wearing the right. Hey, is that seersucker? We can't have that in my court. I'm not These saying, people need an attorney. I'm not saying that. I'm I just want saying, pinstripes. I'm, I'm just saying that what we've heard for years and the, the access to justice issue, I mean, Frankly, in the courtroom is where the justice happens. No, I don't think that's always true. I'm, a lot of not always, but I, where they're having to show, they're eventually going to have to show up at a hearing. Somebody is, whether it's the unrepresented person. Paralegals are not going to show up at a hearing. 
I know, but, and that's a problem. But no, when you bring your way through the process to get to a hearing, I think is oftentimes more than an, a, an untrained person with who knows what educational background can handle on their own. But does it fix the problem, or does it give them just enough knowledge to be dangerous? Oh, well, no, no. I, I, I think that it does fix a problem, too. Well, in, in one sense, in that to the extent they get used, and I think that's a totally different topic that we obviously need to talk about today, because if you're indigent and you can't pay a guy $100 an hour, can, can you pay somebody $50 an hour? You're still going to run into the same problem. So are you going to get the advice? I don't know. You're still going to have to pay for it, um, unless they're working for free, but that's not being suggested. But the issue is, is someone, assuming they're willing to pay, coming into court and and doing things wrong. Well, if they've got a paralegal helping them through the process, they're going to know that, okay, well, after I filed an answer, I need to file disclosures. And so the paralegal is going to walk them through the process, assuming the paralegal knows the process, for example, in debt collection. Okay, well, what is your position on this? Well, it's X, Y, and Z. Well, if it's X, Y, and Z, then you need to go gather the documents. You need to submit them. And then you do this, and you need to do that. If you don't respond, this is what happens. And a lot of people, especially these people in these circumstances, have absolutely no idea what goes on in the courtroom. And, and that being the case, I mean, I think it's evident in the comments. But does it, but does it okay, so let me, let me switch. Let me, let me take that from the other side then. Of course. Um, I like that. Nice. Powers made an inappropriate joke. Wow. Staying in the podcast, because we're not going to edit that. Um, we're going to take out all of mine, but not Powers. <laughs> um, so, taking the other side there, um, in my experience, uh, advising people with debt collection problems who are indigent, 90% uh, of the time, they had absolutely no defense. They they admitted they owed the money. They sounds like somebody needs some training and legal creativity. No, I could oh, Could well, you? I could come up <laughs> with with creative arguments. Uh huh. I, you know, and 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 fancy stuff. But a, it's never going to work unless I'm going to show up and actually argue it to the judge, because it's just going to get waved away, or they're going to be like, uh. According to the case of uh, Smith versus Jones, uh, Your Honor, that I should not have to give back my Prius. Like, 90% of the time it was pe very, you know, honest people who just said, look, yeah, we owe the money, we can't pay right now, um, we tried to work something out with them, but they just won't agree to it, and we just got sued, what do we do? So if the problem is, you know, if, or if one of the problems we're trying to fix is you have this huge influx of unrepresented litigants, whether in court or whether in the paper, in the filing world, and if we have a whole bunch of them who have no defense, by, is this program going to exacerbate the problem no, no, no. I, by, I think by prolonging mean, cases that should just end? You're missing the point. You keep saying unrepresented litigants. That is not the issue that the court is facing at all. I mean, if you look at some of the comments that have been provided, um, and I'm looking at specifically comments in connection with a, a recent a news article, um, one of the commenters talks about the fact that uh, this is, you know, the, the, the only reason that attorneys are fighting against this is because it enriches them. And, you know, when, uh, some of the clarification that's given, obviously by an attorney, uh, says that this is actually an issue about access to the law itself and, and people who have a need uh, for help in navigating the system. And I think that, that's what my point has been all along. These people don't know how to navigate the system. It's not so much, can I stand in front of a court and say what I think should be done? 
as much as it is, I don't know how to stand in front of the court, when I need to do it, and in what order my arguments need to be made, et cetera, et cetera, so what needs to be filed. You're saying the That's what the paralegal is, is designed to be doing. So That's the issue that is being solved, so what supposedly. You're, what you're the, saying is the problem isn't unrepresented litigants. It's people who are going to court or who have disputes without rep and have no representation or people to give them advice on their legal dispute. Yeah, I mean, let's look at... Let's and how is that not a synonym you know, for unrepresented litigants? No, what, what's the difference between those two words? Yeah, you're, you're, just, you're just phrasing it differently. Am I phrasing it differently, Danny? You're saying the same damn I thing. I am not saying the same thing. You're saying unrepresented, but I think you're, you're tied to this concept that you have to have someone holding your hand no, and I don't actually think speaking for you. That I don't is think that's the case at all. No, that I don't is think, I, That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I mean, yes, I think there is a serious problem because, first of all, I think that the big problem arises... Um, and, I mean, we have some legal services already in place that deal with people who are truly indigent and who fall below. I'm going to say the, the line, and I'm totally going to get it wrong, and somebody's going to be mad at me. But it's like, you know, below 50% of the federal poverty line or something like that. You can qualify for legal assistance. And then you have people who can pay. You know, you have the limited legal service providers and the nonprofit law firms that are, that are charging people 75 bucks an hour. And now you're creating a third class of people. I mean, you're creating people that now charge maybe 50 bucks an hour, I guess, who are in the middle, who are not going to advise. So you're not, you're not really talking about the indigent as much as you're talking about people who make just enough money not to qualify for I, free legal services. I, I think if you, read, if you read the recommendations, it talks about people who, frankly, want to represent themselves, but do it wrong. And they, they, they may not have the money to do it, they may not want to do it. But the bottom line is they're walking through the system and they're walking along the wrong path. And so defenses or no defenses, that's really have, have they done an analysis of how many of these people there are? Yeah, that's what that's that what they really that's, want that's what, that would prefer to handle the matter themselves. Well I don't know, you know what, I, that's uh I don't know that they've submitted a survey for that. I certainly wasn't on the committee. I mean, here we're just talking about it in, in concept. And my and, point and I, is, I don't know that you're... Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect on what the concept is, maybe. Well, I'm not saying I understand I it fully, but my understanding is, what my understanding is jibes with what we're seeing in the recommendations being provided. Namely, these people can't go into the courtroom, but what they can do is talk to the person, find out what the beef is, so to speak, and then walk them through Don't you need procedures. a legal education to do that? Well, that that that's the next step, right? We're talking about what what you know what education I mean, requirements. And in fact, in looking in, just before we started this podcast, uh, we looked at some of the meeting minutes, and one of the issues that was addressed in one of the summer meetings of this newly formed uh, committee uh, that was formed at the recommendation provided to the Supreme Court was what are these re these uh, minimum. You know, and, education and, requirements, and I'll read. I mean, well, I can read for. Well, and, and, and I mean, have they made a decision yet, or are they just suggesting? Something? No, but for it's a suggestion. But for example, you've got so they're talking about two types of paralegals, including people that have a juris doctor degree. Although having a juris doctor degree, I don't know why I would ever want to be a paralegal, be a paralegal but some do it. So and it we, says juris doctorate applicants again to be part of this. You are know, they like disbarred paralegal practitioner? I don't. It's not. It's just talking about if you've got the degree, okay. if you have this level of, of training, you would be exempted from passing the NALA or NALS exam. So there's a discussion about the need for, and this is coming from what appears to be the education subcommittee of this 
of this group. So this is a, you know theoretical. These guys are working on the, the the issues, but within that, they're talking about within the subcommittee what educational requirements are necessary. And then later on, it says internships and paralegal study programs, law school internships, clinical programs, and clerkships count toward the requirement of 1,500 hours of experience. Paralegal applications applicants who have received an exemption of the education requirement will automatically meet the majority requirement of 1,500 hours of experience. So the committee, and right now our understanding is that they're working through it, is tackling the issue of what education is necessary. And apparently they've said, well, a law degree is enough. What else do they need? Okay, well, so, so the committee's decided that if you have a law degree, you can practice law. That's, that's the only thing they appear to have decided, and they're still wrestling over good. the mm -hmm. other stuff. I think the related question that is... That's a funny guy. <laughs> Thank you for deciding. Well, you know, you can't practice law with just a law degree, though. Remember, you also have to pass yeah. the bar and pass character fitness. So you may have graduated, but maybe you're so, an ex-felon. So, so wait, so wait, 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 wait. So what your argument is, okay, hold on. You're, you're, you're saying maybe you've, pa maybe you've graduated from law school, but maybe you couldn't pass character and fitness, and so you should else should be advising people on their legal matters? Well, you can't be an attorney, but maybe with these other matters that we don't think are important enough to, I mean, to I put just, a real attorney on. I see. I, here's what I see when I look over at you. See, you're at looking you, at Scott. me and you're, you're, I you're, look over at you and I see someone who is earnestly trying to come up with a defense to every aspect see, and, of this and program. See, he, and here's your problem, and, sir. And, here's your oh, problem, hold on. Let sir. me finish. Nah. All right, hold it. We, okay. we have to. Okay, let, let's we can you, talk over each other a little let's bit. Hear, come on, come but on. We have no, to limit it because otherwise this people is, won't be able to understand. Who what are we're these saying. people anyway? Anyway, that's true. <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to this, you probably this is like pre-suicide, like right before you die. This is the last thing on your to-do list. Um, I'm giving you a reason to live, didn't it? I'm giving you a reason to live. This is not giving anyone a reason to live. Um, so, but we are doing better than I thought we would. And this is our first attempt at this podcast, so those few of you who probably so, will ever hear now, this, okay, now, please now, be generous. Yeah, but, but hold on. Before you go on, you're going to go off on a tirade about why I'm taking position. You're misunderstanding. I'm not taking a position. No. I'm merely explaining what you appear to not understand. I was just making an assumption. And this is based on something that I've read that you today admitted that you hadn't That's read. true. I have So you're confused as to the well, purpose I'm of this. Hoping, that's all I'm, all I'm doing is I'm conveying just, this information that I've read. I'm struggling with the education I'm not you're saying it's me. a good idea because at the end of the day... You don't agree I with that? I think it's a problem. Well, let's think about it in terms of a doctor. Wait, right? no. Wait, 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 wait. It, it's wait, the same wait, thing. Answer Life, the liberty, question. property. Answer the question. Do you, do you think it's a good idea or not? Well, I think the problem... Yes or no? I don't, I don't know enough about the idea, but I'm leaning toward no. I want to hear from Danny in a second because you talk too much, but but first I want to hear you say yes or no. I said I don't know enough about it, but I'm leaning toward no. I don't think it's a good idea. So it's like I lack sufficient information to admit or deny. Admit right? or deny. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think the problem is right now we have a general concept, like an idea, um, and there's a framework maybe, but we don't know exactly what the details of it are. And I think a lot of my feelings, at least, would hinge on the details of how far this program extends and then what education they decide is necessary and how you implement it. And I think all of those things are still being explored, it seems like, in relatively great detail. And so until we know that, it's really hard to identify like, well, let's, exactly let's... how you feel about this amorphous idea where you may be able to do A, you may not be able to do A, you might have to have X education to do A, or you might not. And there's but let's, we're, we got three really competent experienced attorneys here. Let's focus group this. Like, what, 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 
what niche does this program fulfill? Because you've got, because you do have the the legal services that are woefully underfunded. In fact, with regard to public defenders, the state's currently being sued for failing to, to give them enough money. So we had that program that we're not funding for, for indigent people who need a, the, probably the most fundamental of all legal rights, the right to a defense in a criminal case. And then we have also two, I think now two or three separate nonprofit law firms that have set up to offer modest means services at somewhere in the range of 50 to $75 an hour. And that, that practice seems to be increasing. So if that trend increased, like what niche does this fulfill? I think what, they're, what this study is finding is that the low bono and pro bono services that currently exist aren't enough to address the need. And despite efforts to increase that and get more attorneys to participate in the low bono and pro bono, it just doesn't cover the entire need that's out there for those services. So it's not addressing a new category of people or a new category of cases. It's just recognizing that we've never been able to, to adequately provide services to everybody who wants them. Well, and, and let me say a couple, a couple, so a couple things I do agree with on the program. Well, one, I do agree that, that we need to have more legal representation for people. I don't disagree with that. And I think, um, I strongly disagree with the comment um, read by Mr. Perez, I don't think it was like his original thought or anything, but that that some people were thinking this is just attorneys um, complaining about, you know, losing business, because I, I realistically, I don't, at least the way I've seen and what I've heard, and I have, well, I haven't read the task force report, I have sat in the Bar Commission meeting when Justice Simonis explained the program to the Bar Commission and everybody voted to support it, and um, you know, I've been to several meetings, and we're also, like I said, we're putting on the presentation, um, or they're putting on a presentation at the, at the fall forum that we approved. Um, but uh, the, I, I, I don't think this is taking business away from anybody, or if it is, it's a, a really small niche area of the bar. No, I think, I'm, I think that's why the program or the initiative, the proposal exists in the first place. It's because it's a class of business that is not currently being provided by attorneys. How, however, I do see I, there, there are some key problems with it. And I think that one of them is, I mean, I, I don't think you can escape the fact that, you know, who is going to regulate these people or how are we going to pay for all of this? Well, I don't know. Well, that's a good point. You mean the regulation portion of yeah. it? Yeah. Like, I mean, OPC right now doesn't has indicated that they're underfunded and they don't have the resources to pursue all the cases they would like to pursue. And that's just regulating the lawyers. Who is going to police them and make sure they stay within these practice areas, that they're not... I mean, one area where they have consistently had a problem with um, unlicensed practitioners doling out bad advice is in immigration, which is not one of the practice areas that's on that list. And so the Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee right now has its hands full chasing down people who are acting as unlicensed notarios, taking advantage of the Latino community in Utah, um, which is, is growing and is quite large. Um, so who is going to watch these people? To, to is there any proposal to have a annual certification fee similar to the bar dues that we pay? Because I think I, so. I, I think that's being worked through. Um, and I think that part of that will go to 
um, oversight by the paralegal group. And again, I, this is all being worked through, but my understanding is there is a plan in place to require specific, you know, sign-up type certification for these people. How much would and you then, have to charge on a yearly basis to fund basically I don't know. You want to be on a committee? Oh, no. no okay, no. I mean... But, I mean, they do it. They do. They have an OPC, and where does yep. that money come from? How much? And how much are your bar dues? And so, why could not bucks. Six hundred bucks a year, and that works because there are thirteen thousand lawyers in the state of Utah. What if there are only a thousand? How much would you have to well, charge? Well, then your workload would be a sixteenth of the workload. Yeah, but you're also dealing with a, a group of a group of people that are, by definition, aren't as well trained. That their mission or their their areas where they can practice are a lot less well. -defined. I don't know that they're any less well trained. They're just trained in a different. But by definition, they're, they're less well trained than attorneys, right? I mean, they don't have to go to law school. They don't have to pass the bar exam. Doctors don't have to go to law school, but that doesn't mean they're less well trained. They're trained at, in a different. Practicing law, I having practiced medical malpractice law, I can guarantee you, doctors on their own are not very good lawyers. They they're not. But they're, they're creating a separate... Thank you for the tangent, Mr. White. They can take, they can take you. out your spleen really well, but like representing themselves it, or taking care of their own well, interests I think, in a legal I think my proceeding? point is a no. somebody who qualifies for the paralegal practitioner might be better trained in certain aspects of procedure than certain lawyers who have gone to law school and have a JD. I don't think just because you went to law school makes you better trained at everything law-related. Well, and here's the other issue. I, keep in mind the, the group that they looked at when they made the recommendation. It is a huge group of people who, in certain types of cases, don't ever get an attorney. And that causes a problem for legal, you know, the, the legal system in general. When does, it, when does it cause a problem? You just explained it, why courts get frustrated, because these people don't know the procedure. Where, where, where specifically are those people standing when they are a problem? What does that have to do with the price of butter, Gabriel White? They're standing in court, and yeah, so these what? guys can't help them in court. But a lot of it could be avoided. How are they going to fix the problem? Many, it occurs in many, court, but they can't even go okay, there. Okay, Dave, how many sub orders have you handled? You've had a number, a yeah. number, right? Which happened in Every, court. No, they don't. You, yes, you, they do. They, they, they start in court, but then you typically go out to a conference room, and you talk about where the money is. So wait. Where, where is the, where's the mattress? Where's the money? They, they would be allowed to mediate, um, mediate settlements. Okay, but but my point is, every one of those people that I've ever talked to that is an indigent person that we have a judgment against and we want to collect from, every time I've gotten into a room with that person, they are totally clueless about, first of all, how they got into that position, second of all, how the court system works, and when they're going to get their opportunity to present the merits of their claim. They think they're still going to get a chance, and they argue that with you, and you say, sorry, you had a chance before, the merits have been addressed, and now we have a judgment against you. So all I want to know is, which of your mattresses has the shekels in it? So you're saying that the purpose... I mean, the I, purpose I, I, of this is to take someone who would otherwise maybe. hire an attorney and provide an avenue by which they can get some advice, admittedly legal advice, you to understand. help them through this, to, to guide them through this area of the law, to streamline some rather uncomplicated areas of law, if we look at them compared to, to some others, and, and help the average Joe Blow citizen who's got a, who, who Best Buy has a judgment against, or at least has a claim that they want to create into a, you know, turn into a judgment, and now they've been served with a small claims action or whatever that's a debt collection, help them understand the 
how they navigate through this, and if they have a dispute, how to raise that dispute. And right now, they're not hiring an attorney. They basically just show up when it's judgment time, and they learn that they've got a judgment against them. ...calls and different statutes, and some of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act issues that come up in connection with the additional uh, contract claim issues and, you know, accord and satisfaction, all those different contract defenses, they just get lumped in with some of these regulatory issues. And it turns in, it turns out that, you know, stuff that attorneys are doing pales in comparison. You know, full well, licensed attorneys are doing it. Seems like, it seems like debt collection, you've complex. either got some really complicated but good defense, or you're just totally screwed. I think that is a gross... Oversimplification. <laughs> Oversimplification. I mean, in the cases I've seen, they're either, they're either, they've either come in and, like, Literally, we had, I counted it up once over the course of like the, we were on the program for like six years. We had probably 2,000 people come Talking through Talking about there. Tuesday, Wednesday at Bar? Yeah. And, um, and like, of those people probably with debt collection problems, I, I would say 90% were just, I mean, they didn't even dispute the debt. They just didn't really know. And I guess if, 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 you know, if really what they need is, hey, I got this paper, I don't dispute this debt, I just want somebody to help me negotiate a, um, a resolution with this creditor, um, well, maybe that can help. But I, I think in order to effectively negotiate that, you've got to understand a lot of principles because you've got to be able to go back to the deck. You've got to have something to go back to the, to the, the creditor, the creditor's attorney, and say, hey, um, if you aren't willing to give my guy a, a discount on this, you know, here's all the things we're going to do. And it gets pretty complicated pretty fast. No, you're right. Well, that's my concern. You know, is it a lot more complicated than you think? You know, I wonder, are, are we trying to carve out a niche for the equivalent of a nurse practitioner in medicine here? You know, someone who's going to set up shop next to the hospital <laughs> or, or go visit people. Nurse and... practitioners have quite a bit of education. I mean... Well, I think the implication here is that in whatever form it comes out as, these people are going to have 1,500 no. hours minimum of hands-on you know, experience before they ever get out there. Are they, so they're proposing that they have like a, a, an apprenticeship? I don't know that you would call it an apprenticeship, but there's going to be an education requirement. I, mean, I don't those, know what that is yet. Those acronyms you read off before, the tests they have to take, are those the standard paralegal certificate tests? My understanding is, yeah, the NFPA, NALA... OLP, AAFPE, and those I, are all skill tests and things and related I will, to paralegals. And I will say this, I have worked with, you know, some of the finest legal practitioners that I've worked with have been paralegals that have just been doing it for a long time and are really good at it. The vast majority of them did not ever take any sort of test. And then there have been occasions where we get somebody who comes in and says, and doesn't have a lot of experience, but says, I took this test, and oftentimes they're pretty terrible. Just because you, this is an area where you either have to learn through really intensive study, or you have to have a lot of practical experience, but like the course, I, I had a paralegal once who went through the course, who she was already experienced, but she wanted the certificate because we'd pay her more. So she went through it, and it was like, you know, a, a, one night a week or a couple nights a week for three months, and then she took the test, she passed, and she got the certificate. And I, I compare that with, 
like a legal education or even, you know, and when, before we get done, I'd like to talk about um, potential alternatives, ways you could fix this problem in a different way. But like one of them might be, you know, say if you lopped a year off of law school and yeah, decreased costs that way. But, but what I'm, I'm not, saying is... I'm not convinced that even compared the problem to that, is throwing bodies at it, though. Even, even compared to that, like the amount of time spent in order to pass at least some of these exams is not what I would consider robust enough to turn someone loose on their own, even in relatively simple matters, without years of, hey, I've done this thing over and over and over and over and over again. Like the paralegals I've worked with that are really good, usually it's like, hey, I have worked with you know, attorneys on you know, representing plaintiffs in medical malpractice actions, really complicated area of the law, and I've done it for, for 30 years, and so when I get a new one, I will go into this parallel. There's one in particular I'm thinking about right now at our office. I will go into our office and I'll be like, hey, um, here are the facts of this case. Before I tell you what I think, what do you think? Is this a good case? Should I take it? And, you know, more often than not, on occasions when we disagree, usually I'll wind up finding some fact out. She'll be like, well, I think maybe you might want to look into this. And lo and behold, it turns out to be critical. So, but that took, that took 30 years. To do that. But I mean, this, the similar could be said of lawyers too. Just because you go to law school and pass the bar doesn't mean that you are day one after you get your, your, your sworn into the Fair bar enough. that you are ready to go. I just don't yeah, think. No, I, mean, I think that's true. Here's the last I'll say in the education thing. I'm not convinced, despite all of my prior argument, I'm not convinced that there is a halfway measure that we can do here to provide these people with proper legal advice. I just don't, I don't buy it. I mean, that, that's... Would they be better off, like, pushing or trying to assist? I mean, and you've spent some time with the, the low bono... Um, oh, yeah, I got my paralegal, or I'm sorry, those my, folks. Uh, my pro bono certificate. From yeah, here. and, and so I mean, I a lot of that. Every, everything I've seen um, from those guys has been they do a fantastic job. They got us to go do a TED Talk on it. Uh, one of the, and, and now I have, my understanding, originally there was one firm, now my understanding is there's two or three. Um, like, I mean, would, they, would we be better off just by encouraging more, like, underemployed lawyers to provide that service? No, I think we would be better off. And here's the thing, I don't know, I think this is a knee-jerk reaction to seeing some statistics from the courts and frankly being frustrated because some of these people come in and they've blown deadlines and they haven't filed things right and they say why didn't you do that oh i didn't know or there's some so simple answer yeah. yeah well and they assume that oh well if you had somebody holding your hand even though you weren't willing to pay anybody regardless of the amount for that help that you would have done it better i think that's premature i also think it's premature because uh... these these modest means these low bono people they're just starting we have not seen a, a full maturity of those programs yet such that we can determine whether or not they're going to meet uh, some of these challenges that we're, we're talking about here. Well, and I think one question I have is whether there are going to be paralegal practitioners who are willing to do these services at a rate that's significantly lower than what Lobono guys what will, right? Lobono yeah. attorneys or other attorneys who maybe aren't already doing low bono, but what they would be willing to do it for. And if so, 
why why are they willing to do that? Well, I, guess? I mean, presumably, and I guess this is just my my guess, but I mean, presumably, one of the at least one of the factors driving the cost of legal services is the cost of becoming a lawyer. I mean, if if you, I mean, you don't think if there was, if it was cheaper to become a lawyer, legal services wouldn't be cheaper. If you're, if we could cut your student loan payments in half, you wouldn't be comfortable working for, my, for less money at a firm. No, fund? no. I think one of the bigger issues is, and we haven't touched on this yet, but it's an elephant in the room. What happens when they screw up? It's not if. No, yeah. When I, I they're think that's gonna a huge screw issue. up, it, they're gonna screw up. Everybody gonna, does. Lawyers. Here, screw here's up. here's why I'm gonna get on my soapbox here a little bit. This is why lawyers oh, wait, charge. Danny, for the first time, he's going to get on his soapbox. Be ready to watch it's, this. It's soapbox time. Everybody get I your... think you got on your soapbox earlier, but because of the low height, yeah. we just couldn't tell. You just look normal you. size you, for a moment. Thank you. No, go so, ahead. So, one of the reasons why I think lawyers charge as much as they do is because they are a specialist in one of the key areas of human existence. You talk about, well, no, it's true. It, sound, it sounds grandiose. It sounds like horseshit. It sounds grandiose, but no, here's think about, think about the Constitution and the kind of the, yeah, I'm thinking about the, the fundamental you know, rights. We, we talk about life, liberty, and property, right? Life, liberty, and property. Well, what, is, what does a doctor do? Well, he, he deals with life and death issues. He's dealing with your life, your well-being. We pay them a lot of money to get it right. We want them to go through a lot of training to not mess us up. Lawyers deal with everything else. Your liberty, your property, and frankly, your life when it comes to criminal but issues. Let me ask you a question, okay? As, as an economics under, undergrad, as I know you are, and a passionate uh, uh, devotee of the discipline. Devotee. That's the best I could come up with. I couldn't bring myself to call you an economist. Um, oh, come on, Mr. Ballroom Dance. Don't get down oh, on my train. So we're just going to... We're going there. there. We're okay. going there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fat guys can dance. Sorry. <laughs> we don't care what you think. Um, you don't think that the cost of becoming a lawyer has an impact on what it costs to hire a lawyer? I think it does to a degree, but it's one of those issues where it's a sunk cost, first of all, economically speaking. The, the cost of your, your getting an education is what it is. And May so I ask you, are, are you still paying I have, off your student loans? I am, but I've done it strategically, so... Hello, IRS. Um, <laughs> I, I use it as a deduction. It's not that I couldn't pay it off. It's, it's, well, it's, everyone it's not uses a it as, as a deduction. Certainly, but, yeah. but, it, but the, I'm actually paying less in my interest rate on those student loans than I can earn with my money elsewhere. And so you for know? that reason, I not only, not only use it as a tax write-off for the interest, but I'm also using it as an investment because I can earn more elsewhere. Right, but, but okay, so even if it's a tax write-off, though, wouldn't you be better off not paying the money in the first place rather than paying the money and getting maybe some portion of it back in terms of, of reduced payment of your well, taxes? Well, certainly, but I, I, don't, I didn't go into this thinking ROI. Uh, let me ask Dan, Danny, how, did you learn anything your third year of law school that has really impacted your practice? Can you, can you think of anything? And I, I, I'm putting you on the spot, but I can't. I mean, I, I had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot of really interesting things. I mean, I took some fascinating classes, but other than, I will say, I took a trial advocacy class, and that was helpful. I could have taken it my second year. I just waited to take it my third year. But other than that, I, I, I don't think I really... All right, now it. we're getting into the, the 
I think, misguided concept that law school trains you to be an attorney. I think what law school did for me... Whoa, whoa, shouldn't it? it? Yeah, no, no, well... Does, should it, med school train it, you to it, be it, a no, doctor? Your, your, your comment was, your question was, hey, Danny, what did you learn in your third year that you needed to practice? Well, what, but she didn't answer. And, what was and, well, the answer? So, uh, my third year, I took a judicial opinion writing class from a professor who's now on the Ninth Circuit, and I learned quite a bit about... All right, there we opinion. go. Have you had she, to do that in your utility, practice? Utility, yeah, it was useful. There you go. Okay, it was useful. But, but now, hear, let's hear me out. Um, I think law school, as a process, formatted my thinking such that I no longer looked at things, and I was trained during this three-year period to no longer look at things from a from a single point of view. What I, I, I was my brain was formatted to look at everything I do from the from two different angles. From the angle of the advocate and the angle of the antagonist. What percentage of that training was complete after year two? I, I think that, that it was law school that formatted my brain to do that. Obviously I honed it throughout, you know, over a decade of practice now, but it was law school that but, set that up. But, but of the, of the I don't know if it was the first year or second year. I'm not the guy that came how up did, with the notion that three-year law school was what it had to be. Well, no, my, the, re the reason I bring this up is because, you know, if we're looking for ways to convince more lawyers to provide, essentially the problem is people, people can't get legal representation because of cost. Okay, and so if we're looking at that in terms of the cost of legal services, I'm wondering, like some other, you know, some states have, have made it easier to get your license without going through the fully three years of, of law school. California, you don't even have to go to law school. I mean, isn't that, isn't this a drastic form of that? And uh, you could maybe characterize this as just a very drastic form of Okay, but, but it seems like Rather almost too much. Lop off a year of law school and have we'll two just different... lop off the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think we're getting anywhere with that suggestion. I mean, at the end of the day, let's come back to the topic at hand. So, what is the what is the insure like the being insured requirement for this? We well, yeah, to to have a license to practice law, you have to have malpractice insurance. False. When you you do not have to have malpractice insurance in the state of Utah to be a lawyer. You, you don't. don't. Wow. Well, no. you do. You do if you want to participate in <laughs> oh, some of go. the pro bono programs. No, trust me. Uh, so uh, you're telling this. me that I don't need don't, to no, have a, a malpractice policy. So I, when I renew, you should for 2017. The Utah bar is not going to have an issue. Nope. When I write, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? Screw it. No, it's not. Required. I'm not paying Alice anymore. I'm telling you, it's not required. It's hmm. not an absolute. In a lot of states, it is, and I think there are pushes I, in Utah to do it. But the bars. I, uh, I know I'm required in, in in Nevada. What percentage of lawyers in Utah do you think are uninsured? I have no idea. I might would suspect from from just anecdotal evidence talking to lawyers. And keep in mind, so as a preface to answering all, the vast majority of our bar, way more than any of us will realize. I mean, if you you've been, you guys have all been to the fall forum before, right? No. Okay, so when you go this year for the first time, <laughs> shameless plug by you, the Fall Forum Committee Chairman, which is awesome. We got Aaron Brockovich coming and, and Jan Schlickman. It's going to be fantastic. Um, you will recognize that's where a lot of really of solo practitioners go. So even if you're really active in the bar, it's surprising. It, maybe it shouldn't be, but it's surprising. It was for me for when I first walked in because I didn't really know anybody there, and then you know asking around about this. The vast majority of the bar is, is either in a solo practice or is in a two or three attorney firm. Oh, no and question. A, and a lot of those attorneys, their malpractice insurance is to put all of their assets in the wife's name 
or in some kind of sort of complex asset protection trust. Multi-tiered LLC. Yeah, I mean, yeah. or you know, or to just kind of, especially younger lawyers when they're just starting out. To, even though malpractice insurance really isn't that expensive uh, for lawyers, so long as you don't have a complicated claims history or anything. But um, you know, a lot of lawyers go without it in that context, and um, so that surprises me. It it would not shock me at all if, given the bars. You know the the inability to from everybody I should say in the leadership of the bar to agree to impose that requirement. I don't know if that's a something that I, I don't know how that's come about. Um, but um, it, it wouldn't surprise me. It would surprise me if there was a requirement that they get insurance for the, the paralegal practitioners also because I don't know where they would buy that kind of insurance product. I mean, if it's a completely new practice area. I get you would have to underwrite it and figure out what the risks are, and I don't know what you would base that data on. I mean, how would you know how likely they are to have a claim, or what factors reduce those kinds of claims? Would you extrapolate it from lawyers? Would you? I, I mean, I, how would you write that insurance? I know that in I think it's California they require a bond. Uh, you know how that how that differs materially here. Do they have a, here. a paralegal practitioner? Like a, or are you talking for? Lawyers. I think it's paralegal practitioner. It's a bond. California has or one. maybe it maybe it's uh, maybe it's Washington. Is it like I, a performance I, bond or like? I, I think so. I think I think it's a performance. Mr. Bond. Surety over there. It's so wait. So it's I like, have I haven't ever dealt with a paralegal practitioner bond before, but I, it's typically you know the, these statutory bonds. Assuming one gets written into well, the statute, would probably be something along the lines of a contractor bond or something similar, wherein a certain amount of money is required to be placed uh, or to be posted in a bond. Uh, for the purpose of protecting against a number of specific evils, and one of those evils, I would imagine, is you know malpractice or you know gross deviation from the standard of care, a bunch of other similar issues. How would you decide how much that would be, and would that deter people from joining this program in the first place? I mean, it seems like if it would be large enough to actually be, meaningfully be, yeah. cover any claims, it would be high enough that somebody who's charging fifty dollars an hour to help prepare paperwork might have trouble putting up that money um, and it's not going to be helped if it's you know if it's per practitioner even if they bound together in the firm you just you multiply the people and multiply the cost so that doesn't seem like it would work I, I guess I mean you know what do I know but so an another... I'm just saying what 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 I know they may do that but I just I don't know how they work and I'm a little disappointed that Mr. Surety 2016. I saw that you on the calendar, by the way. Looked great. Um, doesn't have more information about what kind of a bond this is. Well, again, it. What kind of a bond? What is in Washington? I just know they have a bonding requirement. I didn't look up the statute. Okay. But at the end of the day, the way a contractor bond works, which again, I would imagine that once they get done having the you're, committee meeting, you're thinking so it's like a performance bond. Yes, but a performance bond in the context of a construction project is different than a contractor's bond or a notary bond. These, these statutory bonds that are required for different professions typically guard against certain things that are enumerated in the statute. For example, if you screw something, I can't remember all the specifics on a contractor bond, but there is a list of things that if, if, if one of these things happens, 
you have a claim on the bond. But help me understand this, and I, I, I have very limited experience with this, I'll admit mm -hmm. that right up front, but uh, my experience with is that the purpose of the performance bond in a contractor context is to provide money to finish the project in the event the the contractor doesn't. It, it is and it isn't. It's it's there to guarantee the performance of that subcontract or or prime contract, whatever is being bonded. So in a legal sense, how would you determine what would how would you what process would you go to? But you're to calling again. I, you're calling it a performance bond. It's not. Or whatever kind of bond, how would you say that? I don't, number? that's my point. I don't know what kind of bonding requirement would be. Objection, speculation, Mr. White. Okay, but we're, we're we saying, don't know. We haven't you're on the seen. You're on the committee now. We've appointed you ahead of the committee. Oh, great. What should it be? I think uh, we ought, to, if, if it were to be a bonding requirement, I'm not convinced it ought to be. I think it ought to be an insurance policy. But where do they get those policies? But why, why should an insurance broker? You can insure just about anything. You can, but it's can for, for unusual, for unusual, and and I've, you know I've if dealt you with a couple of insurance it, companies. That the brokers will come. I, I, no, I'll say it's this. It's like field of dreams for insurance. And I, I get that, and I've worked with a couple of insurers that will insure essentially anything, I, which I won't name them, but literally we've seen them insure claims that they knew already existed and were in court, and they just set the premiums. However. But it's a really complicated, where there's not a standardized set of, of forms and risk analysis and underwriting and actuarial data, data. it's really complicated and it's really expensive. To well, do. it is. I don't know that it's necessarily And it gets passed expensive. on in premiums. It, it, it could be, but it depends on what the, you know, the level of insurance. You can get general liability insurance for just about anything. And so if you're a paralegal and you go to your insurer, you can get personal liability insurance. I don't imagine it would be so, two different alliances. So like a like just like a like an add on to your homeowner's policy. I would I I guarantee if we got some insurance guys in here to talk about the situation, they would be able to figure out what the proper insurance policy is. It just seems like it'd be really expensive. Requirement. But I, I, I don't think there's so. not any data, there's no other it would be it's hard a to state underwrite. by state sort of thing. The underwriters would be taking a bit of a risk, granted, because it is unknown and there is no actuarial data on the subject. However, they would write it. They would find a way. And so, some of those practice areas remind me. Do you have a list of the practice areas there? I think I do. I should have. It's it. essentially family law, um, debt collection, and eviction. Okay, yep. so family law, I, I, I get that some of those others, the damages that you can inflict, might be at least relatively limited. To the individual, they would be significant, but they might be relatively limited. Family law, you could inflict massive damages. I mean, somebody could lose their kids. So let, let me take. So it's temporary separation, divorce, paternity, cohabitant abuse, and civil stalking, custody and support, and name change. So somebody the, could the be fighting over their kids, and be represented by a paralegal practitioner. If they screw that up, what is the value of that loss? But but you're again, it, we're, we're pontificating over what if they screw up. A, one of these things that's been suggested but hasn't been enacted. Okay. So maybe maybe we this will shed some light. This yes. article says that the paralegal practitioner would be able to one establish a contractual relationship, two conduct client interviews to understand the client's objectives and obtain relevant facts, three complete court-approved forms on the client's behalf, four advise which forms to use, how to complete the form, sign, file, and complete service of the form. Um, and obtain, explain, and file any supporting documents. 
Five, I think, is represent a client in a mediated negotiation. Six is prepare a written settlement agreement in conformity with the mediated agreement. And seven is advise about how a court order affects the client's rights and obligations. I, I think there's a potential for significant damage if you do some of those wrong. You're doing a lot of thinking. Yeah, that's what they pay me for. Big bucks. Think. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I agree. Here's the thing. I agree it's an intractable problem in the sense that it's... I don't uh, intractable is the wrong word. It's, it's a big problem. Is it I just though? don't think this is, a, this is a good solution. I agree with you there. And here's, here's one of the other issues that we haven't talked about yet. I think that if you do this, even if you limit it to these areas, you're opening up a can of worms where they're going to be doing everything. Right, because you can't police them. You can't, well, the, the, presumably you can because that's what they think they're going to be able to do. But I don't think you will be able to do it. It's going to be the OPC on steroids. It's going to be Judge Dredd out there hunting down rogue paralegals. Have you dealt with OPC? No, but I... Okay, so... I, I'm, I'm here's, looking at... I, I'm here's my a take. wonderful dystopian future. Yeah, here's, here's my take on OPC. This is my movie like, script. They, they work very hard, and um, I don't think they always get it right, but I do think they, they work really hard, they, they ever, but they don't have the staff to do what they they need to do and there are a lot of cases of lawyers that like if you notice in the bar journal usually the people who are being disciplined like it's not for one thing like it's multiple things that happened over a long no, period I understand of time that. my comment was you're going to have so much of it happening that you're going to have to have an extremely expanded version of what we have now to try to hunt them down. Yeah, it's the police state, and yeah, like I said, you would have to come up with something like. But here, let me use judge let me throw That's a, a wrinkle. Analogy. Let me throw a wrinkle into this, okay? Um, and for very good reason, uh, not making a criticism here, just an observation. The um, Utah Supreme Court um, zealously guards its ability to regulate the practice of law in this state, and I totally agree with that 100%. However, one area where I can see a difficulty is that it will not allow, or well, I guess it's a, that's the wrong word, it, it doesn't encourage and um, kind of limits any attempt by either the legislature to impose restrictions or to, to an, or the, the executive branch to impose enforcement. So one example, um, if you've ever talked to anybody in the Unauthorized Practice of Law Commission Committee, when I heard about Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee, I thought, oh, I had heard that it's a crime in a lot of jurisdictions to practice law without a license. I, I think it's a misdemeanor. It's, you know, it's not, I guess I don't know that. But. And so I figured, well, what they would do is they would investigate and they would hand it over to prosecutors to prosecute. But the explanation that I got when I asked, because that never happens. And the reason is, is because those are, those, that's a, those are statutes enacted by the legislature and they would be enforced by the executive branch. And so instead, the process the Supreme Court has insisted on, at least in that context, is that OPC investigates and then um, they hire a counsel or not OPC, excuse me, Unauthorized Practice of Law Committee, and they hire counsel, either it's, um, usually it's, I think it's Greg Sanders, or, um, well, I take that back, he represents the bar a lot, uh, they, or they'll have somebody from the committee file a motion with the court for an injunction, saying, 
you need to stop what you're doing. And then, if the person ignores the injunction, which is pretty common, I would guess, given it's just a piece of paper saying, please don't do this, um, and they were doing something they could have guessed was probably legal in the first place, um, then they have to go after them with your typical sort of contempt of court, um, sanctions, which slowly escalate over time. Point of, the, of it being, even if it's the proper method for doing it, it's not terribly efficient or effective in terms of the amount of time that it takes to remedy those violations. So if we're assuming that they're going to take the same position with regard to, um, to paralegal practitioners, then I think that's a problem. Now, I, the alternate method they could have would be to create either dramatically expand OPC or create, you know, a separate version of OPC which operates, you know, they have their screening panels and they have the attorneys that review the complaints that come in and if you go through that you get referred to district court for a regular district court trial. Um, but it seems like that would be very expensive. I don't know if prohibitively expensive, but it may be. So, I mean, have you guys in your extensive research, since you are the knowledgeable ones, extensive. encountered any discussion of how this would be, what, what sort of oversight? I'm just a facilitator. You guys are the ones that know. Well, I think we've already talked about that. We don't answers. know what kind of oversight. The intent so they, is to have oversight. Have they talked about it at all in any of these, these minutes that you've reviewed? Uh, I haven't reviewed all the minutes. No. What? I thought you said you knew what you were talking about. I looked at... <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. No. Um. So I think a, a kind of related issue is educating the public and clients on the distinction um, and setting expectations. Because I think right now people have a fairly good picture of what a lawyer can and can't do and what a lawyer is. And then you interject a new level, a new level or like a different profession and explaining to a client what what that person is able to do and is not able to do and how far they can take your case, um, I think presents interesting challenges. Well, I, and making that's... sure that clients are educated enough to know when there is an unauthorized practice of law occurring. I, and I, I think that's a good point. And that, frankly, something I hadn't thought about. I mean, you know, people have a good understanding of of what lawyers do. I think that we as lawyers in the bar kind of struggle a little bit with that communication. I mean, I know that we tried to put out uh, some billboards a couple of years ago that really didn't pan out. I mean, the, the statistics on who saw them and what, you know, I think they had some way of measuring how many people responded to them and it was really low. Um, and I don't know how you would go about I mean, obviously you can't train the clients, all the potential clients, to determine, hey, I've got this limited legal practitioner. I think this person is getting outside the scope of their permitted representation at this stage, and perhaps I need, you know, someone else. I mean, a lot of, a lot of my background in this, this area, as I mentioned probably too many times now, it comes from, like, dealing with underserved members of the Latino community and you know it's really difficult because in a lot of the countries that they've come from there are things called notarios that are kind of 
In some countries, they are effectively lawyers, and in other countries, they're kind of like halfway. Not to be lawyer. confused with Sicario. Yeah, Sicario, that's a different thing. Very different. Although also kind of a problem solver. Kind depending, of on, a problem. depending on your perspective. But, um, and, and the bar, you know, they have worked really hard to, you know, help protect people because there can be some really serious consequences. I'm, I myself, when I was a law student, I helped with a case, uh, an appeal, an immigration case, where basically a woman had gone to one of these notarios, filled out been told, hey, fill out, give me you know, 2,000 bucks. And so it's like all the money she has. She gives the forms to this, this money to this guy. He hands her forms and he says, look, just, and they're in English. She doesn't read English. Says, hey, I'm a notario. You know, I know what I'm doing. I have my office here. Sign these forms and we'll file them for you and you'll get your, you know, your permanent resident card. She, of course, just signs them, files them. Well, they contain a false statement, which is a felony. And it's a, it's a basis for deportation and effectively, you know, I think it's a 10-year or maybe a permanent bar from re-entry to the United States. And, you know, so huge consequences there. And I think the risk of things like creeping over into these other practice areas really high because, you know, are you going to put out, are the bar going to put out a billboard that lists all of those, like, 25 different <laughs> sub-areas that... I, that no one can read at 80 miles an hour? Or are we gonna put up a website that does it? Or like, how do you realistically, is there a way you could ever educate the, you know, what do we have in Utah? Two million people, two and a half million people that live here, about what the difference is, well enough that they could know when they're taking, being taken advantage of. Well, and then where does the client go when the case gets to a point where it's beyond that limited scope? Yeah, I mean, I think, circling back to one of the issues we talked about before, I think, frankly, for, for lawyers, um, for, for certain types of lawyers, this may actually be, a, a, I mean, in a perverse sort of way, a financial benefit because you're gonna, you maybe have people coming into your office that have problems created by, you know, limited licensed practitioners that have gone beyond the scope or have, haven't done it correctly. And you know you, they're going to pay. They're going to come up with the money to pay you to fix it. Um, you know, or you're going to be dealing with somebody on the other side who this is all the assistance they have. And you know, I'm a little concerned because if we're talking about you know fifty dollars an hour, forty dollars an hour, like hiring a limited a limited legal practitioner is not that much more expensive than that. Modest means committee. Yeah, modest means practitioner either for yeah. one of these nonprofit law firms or through one of these committees. And, you know, if we could beef up the funding for one of these organizations or if we could, you know, provide, I mean, even if we gave people money and said, here, here's an extra 25 bucks an hour to hire these people or went to the firms and say, you're performing a public service, we're going to subsidize what you do and allow you to charge less, could they, you know, train the licensed lawyers who are already regulated by the bar perform the same service and would that subsidy or would that additional assistance allow them to pull more people into that practice area? I think you're going to have a tough time selling anybody on subsidy in Utah. No, they don't. No, I, I get that. But you, you understand sometimes, you know. Well, I think practically it makes a whole lot more sense than what's being proposed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we go through these, these, these uh, for example, food stamps are a perfect example. 
there are a dozen economic studies out there that show that we do the food stamp program that we do because we, as a society, like being able to control what people can use the public money for, but that if we're looking at terms of actually how much we help people, how much utility we provide them, um, you'd be better off just giving them the cash and letting them make their own choices. So, um, yeah. What do you think about that, Paris? Uh, I don't know. I, again, it goes back to the first question we asked was, do we need this even? Are, are we really talking about a group of people? Yes, we've got a problem that's frustrating, namely all these people that are representing themselves and, and don't have, at least when they're asked, the ability to hire an attorney or someone to help them. We're going to provide this service. We're going to allow, regulatory speaking, a way for someone who's not an attorney to come in and give them that advice. Are they going to ask for that? Are they going to pay for that? And and if they are, is it going to be better than what would otherwise be provided by the modest means people? And I don't know that the modest means people that that whole program has been fleshed out enough, so such that we can a answer that question right now. But I think that, as we've talked about today, there are enough problems raised by this proposed mechanism, this you know, paralegal practitioner mechanism, that, I don't know, I, I think it weighs in favor of not taking any action, letting the modest means do, you know, run its course, and seeing what these other paralegal practitioner uh, systems in Washington, uh, for example, see what fruits they bear after 10 years as opposed to doing a knee-jerk thing and enacting it now and then seeing what happens later on. Do you think you could, do you think you could um, solve the problem also by trying other ways to make, I, I know I started in talking about this a little bit, but I want to get you guys' thoughts. I mean, is another alternative to whether by means of a subsidy to people who are letter lawyers that are underemployed or decreasing the cost of legal education or... Um, you know, allowing people to read essentially read for the read for the bar exam like they they used to, is that is that another potential solution to this problem? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think it's um, I think it's too ingrained in the culture of lawyers. What is the the cost of being a lawyer? I I think it's going to be hard to. I'm not super ingrained in it. I would rather it be less. <laughs> Well, obviously you'd rather the cost of it be less, but I don't know that people would um, shift the mindset of how much to like how much legal fees should be and the salary that lawyers make, even if the cost of becoming a lawyer was reduced. I mean, I, I, I think despite the cost of being a lawyer, we have, at least right now, plenty of lawyers. Although maybe for a separate podcast is the question of, are we going to have an undersupply of legal practitioners here in X number of years because no one wants to go to law school. The people that are coming out of law school are finding it hard to break into the market such that they're going into other fields. And we've got a whole series of attorneys who are doing a ton of work right now. But what would happen? What would happen? Gone. What would happen to the lawyer to the legal market if there was an undersupply of attorneys? What would happen to rates? If there were an undersupply of Yeah, if there were too few lawyers, what would happen They'd to rates? Increase. They would increase. They'd go up. Absolutely. Right? Which would cause what to happen? But you're 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 saying I'm going back to economics. You're saying let, let's you'd have more people go to law school. Like that that's the way it works. That's the that's the that's the pricing system in the free market, right? Yeah. 
No, and absolutely. So the only way to change that is to fundamentally change the cost of going. And the reality is the cost of going has gone up just dramatically, even in the last, I mean, I think when I looked, I transferred, I did my first year out of Syracuse, and I think when we transferred back here, this would have been in 2006, I want to say in-state tuition at the U was like... But you're talking about... $11,000 Yeah, but you're year. talking about what? what, what's... Yeah. You're and, talking and about now, what's going to happen. 10 years later, and how much is it? In-state tuition, it's well over 20000 I don't know. Yeah, but it's you're trying to get... double. You're trying to get to the brass tax of... And this is state school. ...access to justice. It... Doesn't the cost of becoming a lawyer affect yeah, access and you're to back, justice? You're back to this horse that you've been riding. I think it's another. Long. I think it's I don't another think potential it, solution. Well, I, I don't think that's. I think that solution is so. Not only is it more fraught with problems than even the one we're talking about today. Cut but the third it's, year. It's, it's it's ten times harder. What if to you cut the third year? It's ten times harder to enact. I mean, cut the third year. Oh, you know that's what I would have missed say, out on? But it is that much harder to put into practice. Oh, you would have about trouble getting practitioners. You'd, hold and on. now we're solving problems by doing something that's ten you'd times have trouble, harder than parallel practitioners. You'd have trouble. And it's going to face ten times the, the, the adversity as far as people fighting against it. And This and, is a totally separate topic. But let's, I, let's I, say, don't, I don't see it driving legal I don't either. I, don't see, I, I just don't see it driving legal or what if down. You, if because there, there doesn't need to be categorically. There's enough, enough work that you can do at the high rate. But... If, if you, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we took the amount of expenses that your average lawyer has to pay in terms of, of, of repaying their student loans and cut it by a third, you're telling me there wouldn't be a lawyer who's willing to work for less money? I'm sure there would be lawyers who are willing to work for less okay. money, but... You're, you're, and if you, can, you're, if you're, you as a law firm can get lawyers for less objection money... Objection, counsel. Hold on. You, you're, you're proposing an incomplete hypothetical. Right. I'm going to instruct my client okay. not to answer. So, so if you can get... If, you can, if you're as a law firm, you can get a bunch of associates... Although I shouldn't instruct at, my client not to answer. At, that I, that's right, because you're wrong. You, there's, get, there's, there's no basis for it. But regardless... I get fees. Um, you get it, no if you can hire a No, you get reduced fees because right. now law school is easier my, to attend. You recognize that. The second part of my this, answer so. was going to be as long as there's still a choice, though, they're not going to choose the lesser pay. But there wouldn't if, be. If, as long as there's still a choice, which there will be because there's enough Mr. work that can be done us, uh, at the higher rates no, that are going. What law firm is going to voluntarily cut its but, rates just because the, the, the lawyers don't but, have that great of student debt anymore? Because they're, they're, I'll they're, tell you exactly. We're off the rails. I'll here. tell you exactly <laughs> law firms that are going to oh, cut boy. rates. You guys would. 100%. You know why? Because you have huge insurance companies that come to you every year and say, we don't want to pay rate increases. In fact, we want a rate decrease. I guarantee that conversation has happened because oh. it's happened at our firm and it's happened at every firm that works that does work for insurance companies or big companies that drive a lot of litigation. And if the firm could turn around and say, you know what, our labor costs just went down by, by 20% this year because we just hired a bunch of people who are willing to work for a ton less because their legal, their legal costs are way lower. Why wouldn't they try and capture a larger share of the market by lowering their rates? We are into a total yeah. different area of of inquiry, Gabriel. But, but it would it wouldn't. But wouldn't if if you lowered rates, wouldn't that include improve access to justice? You're not, let's just leave it at this. 
I'm not buying it. I mean, I know you don't like I'm the not, idea. I'm not buying your idea. I think you're a but number I think of your idea. I didn't, I didn't come prepared. No, I don't think it is. And I, again, I didn't come prepared today <laughs> to go into all of the, the flaws with your awesome ideas here. But suffice it to say that were I to do that and prepare a memo, I, I think that your proposal would have a number of significant holes in it. But that's not the issue we're talking about today. You're oh. proposing something else. You're saying, in, in considering paralegal practitioners, and, and despite all of the questions that we have, not only of the need for the program, but the efficacy of it, let's propose a totally different topic and idea for resolving this potential, but we don't necessarily agree with it, problem. So you don't think it's a problem? trying to solve by this other thing. I don't, I'm not so sure that it, it really is a problem when, when it comes to something that needs to be solved. I think it is a problem from a, from a symptom, symptomatic perspective. You've got people who don't, who don't have the ability to pay their debts and they get into trouble and they get called into court and they have to answer for those judgments and they don't have the ability to pay an attorney and they don't really know how the justice systems work. Question is, are they ever going to be in a position where they want to talk to somebody and are willing to pay, whether well, it be a paralegal, willing, and, willing able. and able to pay for that advice? So and I don't know that this, they are. You, I mean, at the end of the day, you guys think this program is pointless? Uh, I don't think so. I think... And I'm just trying to understand what you just said, Paris. I, I'm not convinced that it's necessary, no. So is it a, is a solution in search for a problem? Maybe. I, I, I think there's definitely a problem. I think I just don't know what the way to answer that problem is. And if you can, for kind of the same reasons that you just said, um, that not everybody who currently doesn't have a lawyer might be interested in having one. And even those who are, are they going to be able to pay $50 where they couldn't pay $100 an hour or $150 an hour? 50 is still a lot, especially if you imagine that a case might take 20 hours. Some people, that is still prohibitively expensive. So does a decreased rate solve the access to justice so you, So what you're saying, I mean, are, are you saying that in the civil system, that there isn't really an access to justice problem at all? No. no. You're just saying this isn't going to fix it. I, the, 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 I just don't, I don't know if it is going to fix it, um, and I don't know what could better fix it. The specific problem that my understanding is that they're remedying, I don't know that what they've proposed will make a difference. Maybe it's the way right. to say it. So I, I, I agree with that. This, I think that there is a problem. proposal will work. You don't think the proposal will work? I don't. I think, in addition to that, I think it's got enough negative externalities, another economic term. I know, such I, I that, like it that far extra out, points to power. It far outweighs, uh, you know, the advantages that are being proposed. So Powers won't say it, but he's against the program. I said it initially. I'm leaning against. I would like to see more information about it, but on balance, Dan, I, I'm Dan, not convinced. Danny, where are you at? I am at the place where I'm so happy I don't have to make the final decision. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, so Danny's gonna cop out. That's what no, she's gonna I, do. No, I think it's um, I think it's a good thing that it's being talked about. Um, the fact that people are looking into this, I do, I do think there's a problem. Um, I the cost of litigation is just so high, and to have somebody help explain to you very basic forms that an average person reading a court website won't be able won't be able to understand how to fill out. Um, most people can't afford to have a lawyer do that, and I don't know that they need a lawyer to do that. But at the same time, it's not within most people's skill or knowledge set to be able to figure that out on their own. And 
should there be some something to address that? Yes, and I just don't know if this is what it is. Yeah. But I think at least looking at it is better than doing nothing. No, and I, I agree with that. I mean, I will say just for the record, there is an a, a pretty. I mean, it, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There is a pretty extensive online court assistance program okay, that helps I people, that that helps people fill out place. forms. Yep. So if it's just a question of filling out forms, um, I mean, I, you know, there's, there's a, for like for uncontested divorces, they actually, it works quite well, um, which I think is an area that alternatively, I mean, if you didn't have OCAP, um, this that's an area where I could see a paralegal practitioner being a big help but where you have where it's uncontested and where you do have OCAP where they say here are all the issues you need to deal with and then it puts it into your forms like uh, I don't understand why somebody would not do it for free on the OCAP system and instead would have somebody when that person can't show up and explain it what they want to do to the judge now it's a different story if they can come into court um, my thinking is that there are much more straightforward, easy ways to solve this particular problem. You could decrease the cost of legal services. You there we could, go. You could, hold on, you could increase. How do you do that? You could cut the third year of law school. It's completely now, pointless. Now, here we go. Here we go. Seriously, it's completely pointless. I mean, I had fun, and I feel like I learned a lot about areas of the law that are interesting. I took election law. So I'd be Which curious, was fascinating, okay. but I never have used Have you ever it. looked into people who come out of law school with relatively low student loans? Do they gravitate toward lower paying positions? And, and if not, why not? Well, and, and how I don't is know, decreasing the overall cost of law school going to change that? And I, and I don't know that, that I haven't looked you into that. You and your blasted logic. But I will say this. Um, I think you would get a different result if you conducted that same analysis on the small group of people right now who graduate with very few loans, because they graduate with very few loans for a very specific, couple of very specific reasons, i.e. they were smart, they had high enough grades that they got into law school for free, which means they're probably like at Jones Day or Baker and McKenzie working for bazillions of dollars, or they had money already going in which again means they're probably got a job from daddy's buddy who works at Jones Day, Baker McKenzie, right? Um, not to pick on those firms, those are the only really big law firms that I could think of in the moment. But like, um, I think you would get a very different result if you did that study on what would happen if everyone's debt burden was lower. I mean, I remember I met with Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. Oh, name drop, the, name okay, drop. That's right, name drop. We, we should create some sort of like game's kind of a big buzzer. deal if you didn't uh, figure that this out. This is like or... the one time I ever met a Supreme Court justice, and he was really nice to me, so I mentioned it. But um, um, he, uh, I talked to him right as I was graduating from law school, and I didn't have a job yet. And I said, you know, it was a small group setting. They had pulled some of us aside to get the chance to sit and talk with him for a while. And I said, you know, what advice do you have? You know, I'm graduating. I've got this huge debt that I'm going to have to start paying off. And, um, you know, he talked a lot about the difficulties he faced when he graduated trying to find, you know, he wanted to be a civil rights lawyer in the South, and no one would hire him because he was black. And um, that was very frustrating. And then he told me, he's like, you know, um, it was a few years after I joined the uh, Supreme Court that I was finally able to pay off my student loans. Um, 
So it's not like this is a new problem. And he said, Gabe, I would have charged a lot less if my student loans were. I mean, that's. But here, here's the thing: if you cut the cost of creating a product by 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 a third, the price has got. If it, if there's a competitive market, the price has to go down. Bottom line: if if you think the the market for legal services is competitive, which it obviously is, and you cut the cost of joining that market. By a third, the price has to go down. I mean, it has to. Now, we can argue by how much or whether it's going to be enough to meet the need of these particular people, but I don't think you can argue that the price can go down. But there are other ways you could solve the problem without doing this. You could increase funding, like we talked about before, to uh, people who are willing to do low bone or modest means. Um, the state could better fund, uh, or the feds could better fund the... Uh, legal services organizations that already provide resources to the poor and raise the level of income that you can have and still qualify for those services. Apologies to Matt Damon. We've run out of time today. Powers is tired. It's his bedtime. <laughs> and he needs a story, so we're going to go tell him something about three bears and a blonde-haired girl who gets lost in the woods and bad things happen. Anyways, thank you very much for listening, if there is anyone. And good night. Okay, this would not be the Trial Lawyer podcast without a couple of disclaimers. First, the views of the speakers on the Trial Lawyer podcast do not necessarily represent the opinions of their respective law firms. Rather, all of their comments are made for themselves. Also, nothing that's said in this podcast should be taken by anyone as specific legal advice if you have a legal question or a legal problem, uh, please consult a lawyer that's licensed in your particular state or jurisdiction. Thank you again for listening, and we hope to have something again for you in the next couple of weeks.